Welcome to Product Leaders Podcast, a podcast by FireArt Studio. We delve into the world of product leadership to help empower you to improve end-user experience. I'm your host, Dimon Glinski. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Dima Mendinsky. I'm host at Product Leaders Podcast. Today, our guest is Sohaib Diab. He is a seasonal product leader recognized in entrepreneurial thinking and a programmatic data-driven approach to delivering growth at scale. He has expertise in building high-performing teams across mobile gaming, e-commerce, and two-sized marketplace in startups and large organizations alike. He is current chief product officer of Foodix. He also works as a product advisor for Tamatem Inc. And before that, he spent five years with Booking.com. Hello, Sohaib. It's nice to have you today. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you, Dima. It's nice to be with you and thanks for the invitation. No problem. Tell us a bit about your background, your experience and your current position. Sure, yeah. So so my background is in computer science. That's what I originally studied at a university. My current position is leading the product team at Foodix. I've been doing product-related uh, roles or product management for about 15 years in different roles, companies, obviously, etc. But I come again from that uh, programming background. I've worked as a programmer for probably a year in my career as I got started, but I quickly moved into... What I didn't know was probably product management. I went into product management by chance through entrepreneurship and, you know, doing websites and uh, sort of like doing my own startups, but that naturally developed into a career of product management. I'm originally from Jordan, if that's also something that you would like me to cover, but I'm based in Amsterdam now for about six years or so. Okay, great. How do you like Amsterdam? Yeah, Amsterdam's nice. I've been here uh, with my family Relocated in 2017, so uh, we like it so far. It's quite nice, quite small city with a small population. It's quite nice. That's cool. I'm a digital moment as well. We moved from Ukraine to Poland around 11 years ago. I should say it's cool living in Europe. Like it very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so too. And how how did you find Poland uh, as well? Oh, I love Poland. I mean, Polish people wouldn't agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing country and Warsaw especially amazing city. You have everything here and still it's not a crowded city. Not a lot of cars, not a lot of people. People are very, very nice. Language is a little bit tricky, yes. but doable. I really like it. I've been traveling to Europe for, I don't know, five years maybe and been in a lot of places. And so far I I haven't found any place that is better for me personally to live. Nice, nice. I've, I haven't been there, but uh, I have to check it out for sure at some point. Yeah, it's, it's a great place, especially for traveling. So you can say that uh, your entrepreneurial mindset led you to product management, right? Yeah, I would say so. That's why, how I perceive it indeed. Sort of like entrepreneurs or startup, uh, if you do your own startup, you're on your own business, the closest role to somebody that is running of course it depends on the startup etc but i i see the closest to the role of a product manager at a larger company because usually product managers need to have a diverse skill set so uh, you know working with engineers with, with the product design and ux 
I work collaborating with sales and marketing and the business. So I see, I find many people that end up uh, in the product management craft. They come from a entrepreneurial background. Of course, again, like as you know, product management, there isn't one clear defined path to become a product manager. Product managers come from different backgrounds, expertise, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think uh, one of them is, is uh, sort of like the startup route to become a product manager. Yeah, the best foundation, right? Yes, yeah, 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 I would say so. Uh, again, I think different backgrounds def- bring different skill sets. So I think like uh, computer, my background in computer science helped me along my career in different ways. But that's not to say, again, product managers coming from a design background or a QA testing background or a business background. Each background brings a specific skill set and then gaps that you need to fill to be able to become an effective uh, product manager. Okay. As you've been working as a CEO of your own company, and then you've been working as a product manager on senior positions in different companies, how do you find the difference on influence on the business and its growth between those two roles? So to clarify, uh, I've been rarely a C- the CEO of, a, of any of the startups that I worked at or, or co-founded. I've usually been a CPO or a CTO kind of role, even in the businesses that I co-founded, maybe a CEO for a few months, but never for a, for a very long time. So I think, again, like it really depends on the on the size of the business, right? So, so I worked, again, in the startups that I co-founded, let's say, were quite small. Like they were in the range of five to 20 people at different times. And at, these, like at that size of a business, you have a very big influence as a co-founder of that business. I think regardless of the title that you carry. But usually you have a very big influence on strategy, on direction, on decisions made in terms of like which product do we develop or which market do we target, et cetera. Versus again, like the bigger the business is, the smaller influence that you have on those types of decisions. Of course, again, it depends on your role on those businesses. So for example, when I moved into Booking.com, I joined them initially as a product manager. I moved into a much, much smaller scope compared to the scopes that I was responsible for in the previous companies. But that smaller scope, still because it's a in, in, in a much larger organization, uh, that smaller scope in terms of impact or reach in terms of customers, etc., uh, was still bigger than some of the previous companies that I was working in. So I think it's an interesting shift because again, like you could be in a leadership position, but uh, running a product or a company has a reach to I don't know. 50,000 users, for example, right? But if you're a product manager in a large company, you could be developed, working on a product that impacts millions of users. But I think then your influence becomes on that specific area of the product that you own versus, you know, the direction of the entire business in some cases. I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I yes, totally. try to. Is it easier to operate a lot on your plate being a CEO or product manager of a small startup? relatively small, or having less on your plate, but working in bigger company and dipping more into the product management? I think, like, again, like just from my experience, of course, when I was working in those smaller companies, and again, I worked in smaller companies that I was a co-founder of, and I also worked in smaller companies that I was an employee at, right? And uh, even in smaller companies in these two different capacities, it's a whole different ballgame. When you, it's a small company that you're running as a co-founder or as an owner, then your responsibilities are 
usually not tied to your title. Like it could be CPO, CEO, CTO, it doesn't matter. But you're actually worried about the entire business. You're worried about the entire thing. So you're wearing different hats. Like So my experience, I had different titles in a gaming company that I co-founded with a few friends in 2008 to 2012. And I changed different titles. But I was, again, like I was doing everything that was needed from the business because I, again, like it was, it was partially mine, right? It's smaller companies of similar size or slightly larger, but as an employee, then your focus is completely on what is my, what is the scope that I'm driving? What kind of problems am I solving? And then that's completely your focus. You're not worried about people's salaries, for example, ideally, which is not the case again in a startup situation. Comparing those two examples with like a, in a larger company, such as when I worked at Booking, then you're completely focused on the problem that you're solving. You're not worried about any other operational hassles. You're not worried about financials. You're not worried about raising funding, et cetera. Even, even actually as an employee in a startup, you would probably be worried about those things, right? You would still be thinking, yes, like, yes. is the startup well-funded? Will I be paid next year? Is there like job stability? There's a question mark on those things usually. Uh, again, depending on the size of the business. But when you're working at a larger company, I think then you're, you're sort of not worried about those aspects. And then you can focus on the actual, you know, again, probably you're solving your team, your colleagues, your product itself. So I think that's that has its benefits for sure. And usually at these bigger companies also you have more at your disposal in terms of you know tools or processes that are already in place, strong foundations. You don't worry about, you know, this proper communication internally within the organization. Usually, of course, uh, there's exceptions. What challenges you faced in your previous roles uh, with scaling up everything from tech and tools to people? If I look at the so, sort of like well, the current the current company that I and the current team that I work with today, again, this is a the context is a high growth scale up, uh, going through again like, uh, scaling products, markets, and scaling pe- teams and people and processes at the same time, right? So. In these cases, I would say, of course, like scaling up tech and tools can be relatively straightforward. Scaling people and teams can present uh, many challenges, of course, because again, you're dealing with people and not tools, etc. So I think like there's two aspects. There's the challenge of how do you ensure that you, the new hires, whoever you're bringing into the business, align with the company's mission, values, you know, ways of working that currently exist, and making sure that the new hires have the necessary skills and experience. To sort of like effectively contribute to the team, and at the same time realizing what are the current gaps that you need to hire for in the existing team, while sort of like trying to upskill the existing team if needed to match sort of like the challenge that you're at today. In some cases, the teams that you know, what teams again, this is true for people and process and tools, right? Whatever in this high scale sort of like growth stages, you would need to sort of like reinvent yourself as a company that encompasses all of those things that we talked about every year or so, right? So whatever got you to where you are last year will probably, you will need to either reinvent it or actually build on it, right? So you sometimes you need new tools, you need new new processes, you need to upskill your people, you need to hire new people to take you to the next challenge. And I think realizing that fact is part of the challenge Right, because it's very hard for sometimes for you to flip your mind every year or so and say, okay, now there's a new it's a new challenge. So you need to bring, you know, new skill sets, new tools, 
and sometimes also you know new skills yes new skill sets and new people to address those new set of challenges yeah that's what i understand what you're talking about we've been through several major transformation of our company since 2015 and it's really hard to be always agile and uh, to always be on the same page with the, the the market and all the changes that are going on all over the place exactly so so it's like there is uh, indeed like uh, your company is evolving as it grows right and also of course like the whole market is also changing so you have competitors that are also evolving new competitors that are, might be coming in so again like being conscious of that fact and realizing what is it that you need to change internally and to to react to those uh, external changes is sometimes difficult to try because you continuously need to train your mind to retrospect we have like the retrospectors as part of like the agile scrum methodology right but these retrospectives are on sprint team level. But there's also what I think, what I like to think of it is like, there's a, like a, a multi-layered sort of like circle or onion that there's like retrospectives at the team level, sprint level, and then at the department level, and then retrospectives at the company level to properly, you know, again, understand how and what happened, how can we improve, what do we need to do, what new skill sets do we need, what kind of like tool sets, what new muscles do we require as a business now to train to be able to face new challenges and uh, that comes with growth? Yes, totally. Do you have any insights or how to find the best people to do the right roles? It's a challenge for sure, because again, like depending on... So I think, first of all, I think you need to double check and make sure you have a good understanding of what are your company's values what is it that you as a company look for in people? Sometimes even that is sometimes maybe assumed or not well communicated internally, right? So you might have your own assumptions and uh, thoughts on what is it. So I think like A is lay down those foundations if they don't exist, right? If they exist, then that's perfect. If the company already has, you know, missions, values, things that they look for in people, etc. But I think on top, on top of that, then they, depending on the person's role, etc. So within my area, let's say, of, of control, I have also certain skill sets and certain behaviors that I look for. And when we're talking about like product management in specific, uh, you know, there are the usual things that you would look for in a strong product manager. Inquisitive, you know, uh, is this person somebody that uh, makes assumptions and doesn't dig deeper? Do they uh, take things for, for face value or do they investigate? Do they treat assumptions as given facts? That is a trait that I usually look for when I assess or like uh, say so like look for the right person uh, to join our team in terms of like uh, other behaviors so there's like hard lots of hard skills of course in product management more than happy to like sort of like dig deeper if you want but the the other aspect is sort of like the uh, again like the values that this person has uh, are they willing to you know accept feedback if they, if given do they seek feedback on their own and then we try to sort of like assess that through multiple rounds of interviews to be able to again like see if they, if that person is challenged how how do they react to to being challenged in their assumptions or in their business cases that they usually uh, so have to work on so these are some things that i try to look for but i think again as i said i think it's really good to start from the basics in many cases even a proper a proper job description of what this person is doing where do they fit in the organization 
Is there enough scope within the organization to justify that role? Is it a, uh, is this role or uh, scope ever lasting for a long time or is it just a temporary thing? So all of these are basics that I, of course, we need to, I have to check and, and usually check for before opening any role, basically. Okay, got it. What is your stance on education? Do you think that it's important or you rely more on, on personal experience of people? I, honestly, I don't rely a lot on education. Like I, I rarely look at where did this person study or what did they study. It's maybe five to ten percent of the decision decision making process. I would say. So what I look for more is the person's background, experience, scope, and impact. Uh, where did they work? Are they do they have a like like they have a mindset of working in product companies, right? So depending on where you, which area of the tech industry people worked at they could be they could have like really good hard skills but if they don't come from a, a product company the difference in culture and expectations would be massive right so what i focus on is again is this is this is this candidate or is this person coming from a a company that is known to doing good product development do they work in a product led way when I say product-led, that doesn't mean you know product managers are calling the shots, of, of course. But basically, is the product the centerpiece or this the focus of the business, right? Like, is the product driving the business, or is, for example, product looked at or tech, in the worst case scenario, looked at as a cost center? So these are the worst type of companies that I try to avoid as much as possible. And sadly, anybody that worked in that environment will not be able to adapt to, you know, working within cross-functional teams. Uh, squads that are empowered to solve customer problems, We're collaborating very closely with engineering, product design, UX, and data analysts. That is the model that I look for. And uh, honestly, if somebody is uh, coming from those types of companies that worked well and you know can talk uh, in detail about what kind of impact they had uh, in that organization, I don't care a lot about their background. Yeah, totally agree with you, both on education and on the background that it should be relative to your company. We recently reviewed candidates for sales manager position, and we are a top-notch design and development company. So it's services, right? Yeah. And we've got to speak with several candidates from products. And because th this is very different world, their ex expectations on even conversion rate of sales is very high compared to our industry and uh, the way of work the culture everything is very 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 different so you you got to apply this to hirings 100 percent yeah 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 exactly i think uh, indeed there's a very big gap between yes like service-based it companies i would say again like uh, telcos banks they have large it teams large technology teams but again i think not speaking ill of any other type of like business model, but in my book, like they're very different worlds in terms of for somebody that is not within the industry, they would probably look at those teams as similar teams, like their IT, right? Or their technology. They write code and that's it, right? So that's a very, but being in the industry and you know those details, it's a very different culture, very different mindset and uh, how you look at things. So yeah, I agree with you. Now, do you retain existing people with using work culture? Okay, so if we take it, like I think, take a step back and look at 
is this approach the best to retain people, right? So if I want to sort of like rephrase your question, right? So is this approach of cross-functional collaboration or teams focused on solving customer problems versus writing code? I think if that's your question, is that is that the best way to retain people? I like obviously, yes, I would say so, right? I think I wouldn't be excited. And again, it's just my personal opinion, of course. I wouldn't be excited to come to work to sort of like just you know, write code or do designs or wireframe or do, you know, interface design without understanding what is it that, 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 that I'm solving. So I think like that's the biggest contrast if we compare sort of like feature factories versus uh, the model that we're, we're describing. I think that's one of the biggest contrasts between those two models. One is solving customer problems. They're solving pain points. They're hopefully making an impact on the on the people they're serving versus the other model, which is sort of like, you know, just write code, shell out features as, as, as fast as possible, as, as many as possible with as good quality as possible, but there is no relation or linkage to what is it that I'm solving for, right? Why am I doing things? So I think that's, that's the main question here, like, or the main differences. On one hand, people understand why they're doing things. The other one, they're just doing it because they're getting paid and there's no bigger understanding of why. So I think, in my opinion, yes, the, the, the uh, sort of like the empowered product team model that Marty Kagan talks about in detail and in, in, in his books, Inspired and Empowered, like these are the, I think, the model that is best to sort of like uh, incentivize and retain people, uh, 100% for sure. Yeah, purpose is very important for your personal growth. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. Let's step back a little bit and talk about your current company, what Foodix does and who are your end users. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So Foodix develops, we have a number of products, but we, our focus area is the F&B sector. So our aim is to solve customer problems who are F&B restaurant owners with technology, right? So making their lives easier to run the restaurant. So we develop a number of solutions to help them do that. Uh, we have a, our core product is a point of sale, restaurant management system actually, that includes a point of sale system. This is the, you know, the system that, you know, uh, the cashier uses, the uh, restaurant owner uses to understand how their business is performing. Uh, they manage their entire business based on it. So simple from, you know, their menu, ingredients, prices, inventory management, reporting, all the way to the cashier system, the kitchen display system. So the entire sort of like product suite to help restaurant owners efficiently run their business. So that is our core product. And then we have a, a number of other products. We have a payments product that facilitates payments for those for, for those restaurants. So our main customer base is again, restaurant owners and the employees of that restaurant, depending on the size of, uh, of, the, of the business itself. Our current customer base or our main market is the GCC area, so the Gulf, Saudi Arabia being our biggest market, but our product is available in seven countries today. So we serve UAE as well, Egypt, Jordan, and a few other countries. We have about 22,000, 23,000 customers. So this is a SaaS-based model, subscription-based. And then we have, a, again, as I mentioned, the payments product that we offer to customers as well. Uh, we have a number of products in the pipeline to be developed, of course, but uh, these are, yeah, this is the core uh, segment, core product. Okay, got it. So your end users are restaurants, right? Yes. So the the, the direct uh, customer is, our, is the restaurant owners and the staff of the restaurant. They interact and they use our products. 
the sort of like the second tier customers are the customers of those restaurants. So we have a few products in the pipeline actually launching in beta right now that is also the customers themselves of those restaurants. So, you know, the people that are going to eat at those restaurants, they also interact with our products directly. An example of this, for example, is a table, table payment product. So there's a QR code on the table, customers scan it, and they can pay for their order. So that's also sort of like a, a customer-facing or end-consumer-facing sort of like product for the people that are visiting the establishments. Probably something like tips through QR as well. Yeah, so tip management or tips is is is, a, is coming as well on top of that. So yeah, uh, so loyalty products as well uh, that customers would interact with for those restaurants. So a loyalty product to enable, enable the restaurant to uh, set up their loyalty program. Our customers would interact with that. So the more they order, the more points they get, and they can redeem them. Tip management is actually in our roadmap. This is just amazing. I, as a customer of restaurants, I love this digitalization because I, I, I had cash money. I'm from, let's say, kind of new generation and I want to pay by card. And, you know, when you ask waiter, can I pay you tea by card? It's a little bit awkward and clumsy because they, they ask you back what will be the, 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 the number and you're like this number. So it's not not compared to leaving money on the table silently and getting off from the restaurant. So the, the, this QR stuff is, is amazing. I love that. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do you make sure that your focus remains always on the product and its usefulness to the end user? Uh, that's a really good question. And it's also a fundamental question, I would say, of product management. If you do your job well as a product manager, right, you're always trying as much as possible through different ways to keep the customer at the center of what you're doing. And I know it sounds like a cliche of keeping the customer at the center of what you do. But I think, again, like if you're doing a good job there, you're always the voice of the customer at the table, right? So you represent the customer through, and you do that through, again, like data, qualitative and quantitative data to be able to say, to have the best judgment of what your customer wants. And I think, again, like the big, the stronger that product team is, the better sense that they have for what the customer wants. So I think, again, I think that's, that's sort of like, again, how good product teams really run as, you know, they, they, they try as much as possible to represent the customer always. I would say even the really good teams, that's not a, a product manager responsibility, everybody on the team. So like really efficient teams uh, from the product manager, the designer, and also the engineers are trying to represent the customer. And they always go through this uh, negotiation and discussion of who has the biggest grasp on what is the hypothesis and how how good is that hypothesis what is what is how good is the data in that hypothesis to drive their decision making and what do they invest and what do they work on sprint in and sprint out so yeah i think i think that's that's the the main the, yeah um, what, what product teams are, are there for uh, are there to do okay you mentioned that you are available in seven countries right yes do you face any diversity in your end users needs through those countries and how you deal with that? Yeah, so that's a good question indeed. And I think the, even like, uh, again, like in, in Fodex or also in Booking, you have, again, like as, as the company scales and as the product you work on scales, you could be in seven countries or you could be in a hundred countries that are interacting with your product. So I think 
it is challenging. And I think, again, that's boils down to how good is your data sources and your foundations when it comes to data? Are you, are you, do you have reliable data sources that you can look at to make decisions and also just be informed of what's happening with your product, A, right? And then be able to dig deeper to see how, what's going on and what, how are customers using your product? So in, in, in the specific case of, of like athletics, we're in the same geographical region. So overall customers, have similar behaviors when it comes to interacting with our software. Uh, of course, I would say it's not more, it's not about the countries themselves, but more about the customer segments or the types of businesses, right? So in a restaurant, you have different types of businesses. You have like QSRs, which is quick service restaurants. You have a fine dine restaurants and you have like coffee shops. And then you have enterprise or like customers, right? So enterprise would be, you know, businesses with 50, 70, 100 branches. So in the, in the current case, I would say we're trying and our teams try to figure out again what are the needs of those types of customer segments. And then these customer segments and their needs might differ per country, but not at a very big, it isn't a very big difference. Obviously, again, like uh, there might be nuances to this, but overall, we try to focus on customer segments when it comes to size of the business and the type of the business, because their needs then varies differently. Okay, got it. As I understand, the market is quite crowded. Uh, the market of uh, solutions like yours is quite crowded and saturated. Uh, how do you differentiate your product from competitors as the scale? So uh, honestly, like uh, my philosophy is not to try to focus a lot on competitors and try to focus more on what our customers are telling us, because I think it's a it's a slippery slope when you start to look and compare at what your competitors are doing because they have different customers, right? So if you, it, again, it varies differently. Are you looking at competitors in the same markets after the same customer segments? Or are you looking at like global competitors, which is very appealing usually to look at, you know, global players in the same space, but they're usually sometimes in like very different markets and they're very different customers. So I try not to look at what competitors are doing. I think product managers, in general, need to be aware, of course, of what competitors, so two different things. Awareness of what competitors are doing, that's a must. You always need to have a look at what they're doing, especially if they're in the same market that you're at. But there's a very big difference between looking at awareness and then like, sort of like just copying what they're doing. That is, is something that I would highly discourage from doing because, again, your customers are different than their customers. I would usually try to always focus on what our customers telling us telling us directly or indirectly, right? So even their data and how they're using their products, they're also telling us something. The lack of usage of certain areas of the product, that's also, they're telling us something indirectly, right? And they could be telling us something directly through sales, you know, sales teams, channels, customer service, app store reviews, whatever it is, right? So that's what I would focus on versus what competitors are doing. But yes, it's a crowded space. Yes, for sure. Gladly, uh, in the case of Fudex, we have a, a very strong market share, especially in Saudi Arabia, in the customer segments that we initially targeted. So we're, we're uh, in terms of like some small and medium-sized businesses, QSRs, quick service restaurants, our product product market fit is quite strong. And we have a, uh, a leading position in, the, in terms of market share there. But we do have competitors, of course, like trying to get into our segment. And we're also expanding into other segments where we are not leaders and we have strong competitors there. So obviously, we're very much aware of what they're doing, what do they have, and what do we lack 
and how do we bridge those gaps? And uh, that is that is yeah, that is the uh, something that we definitely are uh, following. Okay, got it. Do you rely on data and research to find a good market fit for your new sub products? Maybe. Yeah, for sure. So, so that's that's uh, you know the whole discovery process is a very big thing that we uh, we focus and we inv- invest a lot in. So, qualitative data at the beginning to uh, test out ideas or to validate very high level assumptions and hypotheses, and then quantitative data in terms of again uh, if there's any internal data that we can look at to detect signals of, you know, customer intent, or is this something that they're looking for? Is there a actual need here? So uh, uh, for sure, yes, you know, we do customer testing and user testing through certain tools, such as usertesting.com, for example, we run prototypes, we have panels of existing users, as well as panels of benchmarks, sort of like panels of customers of other similar tools. So we benchmark, we we have both sort of like, um, panels or the existing users and non-users test out those prototypes before we write any code, right? Uh, we collect feedback and then we talk, take that feedback into further iterations. Usually any any first iteration uh, is never perfect. So there, there's always feedback. So teams iterate, really test those assumptions and the, those prototypes. And then once they feel confident that they've captured what customers are asking for, and again, these usually are you know talking to 10 to 20 customers, so you're not capturing a very wide spectrum, but you try to cover you know take a representative sample of your users, prototype and test, and then go into development, usually as as simple as possible, of course. So, uh, um, and then uh, what we're doing now is we're going into experimentation. So take that feature run it through an, as an A-B test, validate the hypotheses, and based on that, decide to invest further or go back to the drawing board if there is a need to do so. And so we're going through that actually in these months, implementing an A-B testing tool and start to experiment with our hypotheses versus you know, uh, just developing something, even with a prototype, and just roll it out to all the users without a proper A-B test. So A-B testing is a really big focus area for us now to be able to, again, gather real data of a you know pre and post change and validate what is it that we were looking for do we see the do we see that on those metrics uh, that we've defined uh, beforehand and then if we do you know and it's a, a significant result or a conclusive result then we decide to put that feature you know full on for all of the customers yeah sounds like the best approach yeah, yeah, I, uh, it's definitely the best approach to me. Like, if you don't do that, and again, like again, in startups, that's the balance, right? So many startups succeed and got to get to a critical point of success without AB experimentation. So I think like you can do things without AB experimentation. That's the reality. Like a lot of companies don't do AB experiments, and they do get some product market fit, right? But I think at some point, especially when you scale and you start to amass a large user base then you have also enough traffic to be able to experiment. And there is the, the need to experiment grows a lot because you're no longer talking to 10 or 100 or 500 customers at some point. So you slowly lose the grasp of what customers want. Like Because again, like if you're, when you're starting out, your customer base is small, you can probably afford to talk to a good number of them, again, depending on if it's B2B or B2C. Obviously, in B2C, it's a different ballgame and it's a different situation. But in in a B2B setting, but once you, again, like grow, etc., I think uh, you start to lose grasp or it becomes harder to 
really be able to assess is this something, is this feature actually what we thought it will have on those thousands of customers. And I think the only able way to, to be able to do that is through experimentation and maybe testing. And especially again, like when the teams grow as well, right? So when you have like one team with a few engineers versus like 10 teams, 20 teams doing feature rollouts, et cetera, then it becomes very hard also to determine what worked and what didn't work. Because you're releasing so many things and it's very hard to isolate the impact. So when it's a smaller product, smaller team, you're probably releasing a couple of features every sprint every few weeks, right? So if you see something going up or down, you can potentially say, yeah, it's actually, this is why. But if you're, again, you have 20, 10 teams or 20 teams now releasing things, it's very hard to tell what kind of impact is each team delivering, right? What kind of impact is each feature delivering? Uh, and I think that's where, again, you really need to uh, adopt an experimentation mindset. Of course, the sooner you do it, the better, uh, 100%. The sooner you experiment, the better. I can tell. I borrowed several startups by myself uh, yeah. because of this particular mistake that I haven't done a lot of research and haven't asked potential customers whether you need this actually or not. And yeah, it's it's a foundation. Yeah. How many experiments survive? Yeah, you mean succeed usually? Yeah. Like I, I can tell you, like I'll cite numbers and the public numbers from Booking.com because you know at Booking they run. There's usually a thousand experiments live at any given moment at Booking on Booking's products. So uh, their scale is much bigger. So I think uh, it's it will be more relevant to uh, for your question. So usually I think the success ratio of experiments, like when an experiment when something goes into an experimentation, uh, an actual experiment that is exposed to customers. I think the average success ratio is about 10%. So 90% of experiments fail. At least they fail in their first, first iteration. It's a similar ratio. I think actually Google, uh, 94% or 93% of experiments fail. But I think, yeah, I think if you Google it, uh, Booking's experimentation failure ratio, I would say is 90%, which is eye-opening on its own, right? Because if they didn't experiment, 90% of what they would be releasing would have failed why the team initiated or did that, that did that change. Yes, yes. Right? So you can imagine, again, the compound effect of failure would probably mean that booking or those companies wouldn't be where they are today. Or wouldn't exist at all. Or wouldn't exist at all, exactly. So there's a very interesting study, I believe, at that Harvard did of the impact or the contribution of experimentation to the success of business of companies. And I think Booking was mentioned there as an example, but there were a number of business companies mentioned, and they tried to establish a link between number of experiments versus the valuation of that business, right? So the more experiments companies ran, the higher they were valued or their market cap was. So it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, not a, again, like a, a strong link, but it's a hypothesis that the more experiments you run, the more likely you are to be successful as a company. Yeah, quite a good formula, I think. And it, this is only the first stage, right? Nine to one, this is the first stage of, of experiments. Then the second stage would be better conversion rate probably, but still there will be that. Usually, yes. So, so I've had experiments, so I've, I've, I've run many experiments, obviously, during five years of booking. So usually, uh, yes. So I would say, like, if you run an experiment and it stops, usually 
at least Ryan, from my experience, if you do a second iteration of that experiment, the chances of success increase slightly, but it's no guarantee. Sometimes you could run, rerun an experiment, or like modify the experiment itself three or four times, uh, and you still can't figure out what's going on. On uh, like, and then you you have to go to the drawing board, right? You have to go back to your to understand your assumptions to uh, recheck your data. Where you were you looking at the right data at, at that point in time? Do you really understand what is the customer need? Uh, and usually, again, like you either get an insight or have a new insight that encourages you to continue this uh, line of experimentation. And if you don't, you really you will have just to scrap that idea and move on. Which is another. So that's a very, I think, important point. An experiment failure isn't a bad thing usually. Like you need to like the culture of the business needs to look at experiment failure equally to experiment success. Obviously, we would be happy if this experiment succeeds, right? But if you also fail at an experiment or an experiment fails, that's also fine because in that point in time, you either understand that you don't have a good grasp of, of what the customer wants, A, or the hypothesis on what you wanted to do is actually a bad one and you can just scrap that idea. So the faster that you are able to validate or invalidate ideas, the better, right? Yeah, also it's attraction. So you you know more, you know more about your customers or some ideas or high, some hypothesis, and then you can use this data uh, in your next experiments, right? Exactly, to iterate or to improve that hypothesis, or and sometimes you, you go from one hypothesis to the other until you, you end up to, uh, you know, uh, doing something that actually has a big impact on, on the customer. So I think, yeah, I think uh, that's a really important point to look at it fairly, uh, equally and the culture to support experimentation. That is to look at, again, uh, experiment success and failure uh, in a positive way. Okay, got it. What is the best and the worst part of your job? The best and the worst part of my job? I would say like the best is... Uh, my favorite question. Like, yeah, I know, that's a good question. I would say the best is in my current job, I would say the impact on people. Like I think... And, and when I say people here, there are two sides, like impact on customers. When you're solving a like a problem for a customer, a real world problem, that's how I personally relate to what I'm doing. All right. So I, I need to I need to feel that I can relate to the problem that I'm solving and I feel that I'm actually contributing to solving a good problem. And I would say again, supporting restaurant owners, many in many cases entrepreneurs to run their business is a mission that I, I can relate to. So I think the first part of uh, uh, like the good part of my job, I think, is the impact that it can have on people. People, one being my the customers that I'm that we're serving, people that I work with, so my team and the people that I work with. I think that's a having a positive impact on their careers, their lives, their experience. I think that's where I feel that I've, I'm happy and I'm content if I feel that I'm able to do that. So that's I think the best part of my job, and the worst part of my job, I would say. Um, Hmm, let me think about it. <laughs> Maybe you don't have worst part of your job. It's fine. Yeah, like I, I'm, I'm trying to think about it. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anything honestly. Like I really like my job. I really like my job. I'm passionate about it. So I can't think of anything that is worse, like or like bad about it. But I think there are challenges, right? Like there is, there are challenges that that are in the, in the job itself. Challenges in terms of what you want to achieve so i would say like there are challenges of course but like something negative or bad i don't i can't like and, and i love product management it's just something that i'm really passionate about 
So uh, I can't think of a, of a worse thing, to be honest. <laughs> okay, that means that you're on your job and uh, you thrive on challenges, probably. Yes. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. What is one mistake you've made that taught you the most? I would have to go back to the first like real startup that I did because I had a couple of startups but that didn't train, train, like, translate into companies. They were acquired at a very early stage, very, very early stage that they were not a proper startup, I would say. So the first startup that I had was a that I co-founded with a few friends was a gaming company in 2008. And I think that experience gave me, uh, I think, uh, the biggest learnings. Obviously, again, like everything gives you learnings in life and in your career. But I think actually one of the biggest, I would say, is uh, link it to experimentation. Like we, one of the biggest, I would say, mistakes that I did or we did at that point in time uh, was, you know, developing a, a, I would say just a product, but the entire bet of the business was based on gut feelings and assumptions. Uh, and like one of the biggest learnings that I had back then, well, I, what I took from that, and that's why again experimentation really resonated as a as a really strong like mindset that product managers need to have at their core, right? And product teams don't have need to have that at their core, um, um, because what we did back then was again like we had a, a hypothesis or an assumption uh, of something that we thought customers wanted, and we really put everything that we had uh, in terms of like funding into that idea, but we failed to validate it. We failed to, to approach it as a hypothesis. We approached it as a given, as a fact. We know what the customer wants, right? And we developed an entire product, uh, an MVP for product. And again, in that MVP, a number of assumptions were baked into it. Uh, we've used, we knew, we used a new technology, which is a big risk. So again, like we adopted very early on a technology that was very new. So that was again, like a, Another small lesson is don't like bet your bet your startup on a new technology. Like usually go for something that is that is well well used. Uh, um, but I would say yeah, I would say like well that's one of the biggest lessons. There are also like again, who do you partner with? Who who are your co-founders? Who are your early on investors that you take you take on board? These were all also lessons uh, from that experience. But I would say the one that is more product related is the one of related to experimentation and hypothesis. So only one closing question. This is the funny one. Yeah. Who in the world of digital products you most like to take to lunch? Like I would love to have lunch with, uh, I mentioned I mentioned them already, so I'll, I'll repeat, Marty Kagan. Like I think Marty Kagan books inspired and empowered, really inspired me uh, in terms of like, what does good and I, uh, like uh, I was I was fortunate enough also to work at a good product company which is Booking.com that I learned a lot from as well. I've seen a lot of those things that he preaches in his books applied uh, in real life in in, in Booking. But uh, at least again, like in the area that I worked in, at least in Booking, I was fortunate enough to to work in a really good product area. But I, in terms of like how I would like uh, again in, in, in a product tech topic, uh, Marty Kagan, I would I would love to have a lunch or dinner with him and chat about hypotheses and testing and experimentation for sure <laughs> okay this is interesting okay thank you very much it was very interesting conversation thank you like, well, it was very nice to chatting with you as well Dima. thanks a lot thank you very much product leaders podcast is brought to you by fire art studio i was the host dima Vendlinski. 
to find out more about FireArt and how we aim to build a brand that will contribute to the world with useful products that empower people and make their lives easier, visit fireart.studio. Search for product leaders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fired Studio, thank you very much for listening.